Hey, welcome to episode three. Thank you for being here with me. Today, I'm going to talk about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders that took place at Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. I know that this is another popular case. I've been doing pretty popular cases for now. I will probably go into more obscure cases later on, but for now, I'm going to do, I think, what are maybe considered classics. Hopefully, you don't mind. So I'm just going to jump right in. Camp Scott was a 41-acre compound that sat between Snake Creek and Spring Creek just off Highway 82. In April 1977, there was training going on for the young teenage counselors. I just want to stress they are teenagers. I just think that's something that you should keep in mind. During that time of the training, there were a few odd events that took place. One of the counselors at the camp said that some of her items were stolen, including her eyeglasses. I'm going to come back to that later, so just make a mental note of those eyeglasses. Also, someone had created an effigy of a man. So maybe I'm dumb, but I I didn't know exactly what an effigy was. But it turns out that it's basically like a sculpture or a model. Some type of life-size figure that is meant to resemble whatever it's there for so in this case it was of a man so there was like a model of a man that was hung from a tree by its neck so also one of the cabins had been ransacked and there was a note left inside an empty box of donuts that said quote we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one they believe that whoever wrote that note was also the person who possibly ate all of the cookies (laughs) not the cookies the donuts i'm sorry that note was handwritten. The directors of the camp suggested that it was all a prank, but they, I guess just to be safe, they did make sure that they were just going to cut the training short and send everyone home, which just quick side note to me suggests that it was serious enough to where they took some type of action. That's just something that we're going to come back to a little bit later. So basically this camp was a two-week camp and this is the story of the Kiawa unit. In this unit, there were 27 girls, and their first day of camp was June 12, 1977. The counselor said that the first day of camp was often the most chaotic day, and that during the night, most of the girls would stay up chit-chatting and giggling. I think that's pretty normal, especially for young girls when there's a sleepover. You're just so excited, you can't sleep, and for some reason, you have so much to talk about. Each tent was supposed to have four girls to a tent, but there wasn't enough girls for the last tent, so tent number eight was only three girls. The way the tents were set up were basically, they were set up in a semi-circle. There was a cabin building thing that was in the center, so it had, it had like a shower, a kitchen, and some storage space, and it was basically just in the center of the semi-circle which means that tent 8 was pretty much directly across from the counselor's tent. The only problem was that the shower was in the way. It was blocking the tent. So there was no way that the counselors could see the girls and the girls couldn't see the counselors. I know I say this each time, but you can find a picture of the tents on Google just to give you a better idea because basically these girls were the only ones that were not visible to the counselors at all. Not only could the counselors not see them, but they were something like 70 yards away from the counselor's tent or something like that. They were pretty far away. They most likely couldn't hear too much of what was going on in the tent. 
All right, so let's talk about June 12th. On June 12th, 1977, it was the first day of camp and everything seemed to be fairly normal. In the evening, the girls had dinner and when they went out, it was pouring rain outside. It was raining so hard that there wasn't much to do, so the counselors told the girls to go to their tents and write some letters to their parents and then just go to bed. That night, the three girls in tent 8 were murdered and raped. The victims were Lori Farmer, who was only 8, Michelle Hughes, who was only 9, and Doris Milner, who was 10. These three girls were the youngest girls at the, at the camp. Michelle had attended the camp the year before and was actually really excited to be back. She was said to be very athletic and very active and that she loved outdoor activities. It was more than likely Michelle who was guiding the girls on what the camp was like. She was probably telling them all about her previous year and how much fun they were going to have. Denise was very anxious about the trip and she actually told her mom that she didn't really want to go. And her mom, Betty, said basically she said that she tried to convince her to just go and try it out. If she didn't like it, she can call her mom and she would come pick her up. Lori was the youngest of the girls and most likely was unaware of a lot of what was going on and was just following the other girls and happy to be there. It seemed from their letters that they were making friends. Before I go into the murders, I want to explain what happened throughout that night according to the witnesses that were there. At about 1.30 a.m., multiple people reported hearing weird noises throughout the night. They said they heard moaning noises somewhere around 10 a counselor went to investigate the noise but did not find the source so she went back to her tent and to sleep at about 2 a.m one of the campers in tent 7 was awoken when someone with a flashlight opened the flap of the tent at about 3 a.m one of the campers heard a scream somewhere around where tent 8 was and another camper heard a scream and then someone crying and saying mama mama during the night the counselor saw a light in the trees and when they flashed their lights back at it it would stop but reappear when they would turn their flashlights off quick little note i remember hearing that they said that it was like a very very small circular light so they weren't sure what it was that'll come back later around 6 a.m camp counselor carla white would discover the bound body of one of the girls wrapped in a sleeping bag on a trail some 150 yards from their tent the two other bodies were found quickly afterward, one in the open and then also another in a sleeping bag. All three girls were raped, bludgeoned, and finally strangled. They were also gagged and had their hands tied behind their backs. Lori and Michelle were bludgeoned to death, but Doris was strangled to death. That's something to note. Two of the girls had been raped, but the other was sodomized. Again, something to note. Police believe that Lori was probably killed first, then Michelle, and Doris last. Before I go into the next part, I want to read the letter Lori Farmer wrote to her family that night that she passed. Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Guse and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. I wanted to include that letter because they were basically her last words and it was to her family, which is kind of nice that they were able to get somewhat of a last conversation with her. And also just as a reminder, these were real people. These were little girls. And on their first night, they were writing home to their family. And it, so just to highlight a little bit of the tragedy and, and just the realness of the case. 
Once the police arrived at the scene, it was not secured. Only the body bodies were secured. So let me set the scene a little bit. At the tent, there was blood on the floor. So this suggested that the girls had been killed in the tent and then dragged to where they were found. Actually, before I set the scene, I want to talk about the way that the camp responded to the murder because it's 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 messed up and it just makes you wonder the camp was just so callous so unempathetic i guess it just makes you wonder why they were so clueless so while the police were investigating the scene they were distracting all the girls having them play some games they didn't tell them what had happened but about four hours later they were able to evacuate all of the girls and get them on some buses and send them back home. The director first called the insurance company, and then they called their attorney. They did this before they called the parents and let them know what had happened. One of the families of one of the three girls weren't able to be reached, so they ended up contacting whoever was on their emergency contact, which I believe was a friend of the family, And they just sort of let them know that there had been an accident and they needed to come and and meet them where the buses were. The family friend was finally able to reach the family and let them know what had happened. And he said they said that the girls had died in an accident and they needed to get there. Basically, all family members of the three girls were told that the girls had been killed in an accident. None of them were told by the camp that they were murdered. The family only later found out that the girls had been murdered when it was all over the media. So just imagine being a parent to a a little child and you think that they were killed in some freak accident on the first day of camp and then you go home and maybe turn the news on or something and then you go and you hear that they were actually murdered. I would be really mad if I found out that the camp had straight up lied to me. And that's where I think many people have a problem with the camp because they were just very unethical in the way that they handled it. They were more worried about their legal obligations or possibly getting sued rather than how these parents would be possibly feeling or what was right for them. Okay, so back to the crime scene. The police suspect the girls were murdered between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. The police found fingerprints on the body's cord black duct tape and on a red flashlight that had been left on top of one of the girls they said that it appeared that there was a fingerprint on the lens of that flashlight the tent appeared to have been cleaned up a bit or at least like it was attempted to be be cleaned up so basically they had tried to wipe down some pools of blood with some towels and didn't really clean it but it looked like they sort of attempted it which is something that is sort of interesting because why would they try to clean it up and then they didn't clean it up something to think about a footprint was found outside the tent from a tennis shoe and inside the tent there was a different print found a witness said that he heard quite a bit in in quotes quite a bit of traffic near the camp around the time of the murders The police brought in tracking dogs called the Wonder Dogs and had them looking for any additional evidence and hopefully finding the killer. The crowbar that was found on June 16th had actually caused a lot of drama. Sheriff Weaver publicly announced that that crowbar was a murder weapon and that there was a suspect. However, DA Sidewise corrected Weaver and said that the murder weapon was unknown and there there were no suspects. The weird thing is that a day later, The DAY said that there were several suspects and that the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation backed up this claim. 
Eventually, the murder weapon was said to have been an axe from the camp. The Wonder Dogs found a cave about two miles away, and inside the cave they found eyeglasses that were stolen from the camp, duct tape, a flashlight battery, and two photographs that included three women. So if you remember earlier, I said to keep in mind about the eyeglasses. This is where it's going to start to come into play. On the wall of another nearby cave, there were uh, there was this writing that read, quote, The killer was here. Bye bye, fools. 77-6-17. Basically, June 17th, 1977. At the time of the murders, there was an escaped convict on the loose in the same woods that the girls were, and his mother actually had um, lived only about a mile away from from there this convict was gene leroy hart so he had been on the run for i believe about a year or so at this point sheriff weaver seemed to have some sort of a vendetta against him he really didn't like him and right away sergeant weaver wanted to pin this murder on leroy hart leroy had been convicted of kidnapping two pregnant women and raping them he was in prison for life for the attempted murder of those two pregnant women and that's when he escaped as i said sheriff weaver immediately thought that it was leroy who had done it since he knew the area well and he was uh, out of prison and so a massive search began the pictures from the cave did link Leroy to that cave because when he had been at the prison, had to, helped to develop those pictures. So the pictures did link directly to Leroy. And also the cave was only 100 feet from a cellar and a foundation that was part of Leroy's childhood home. It led to his childhood home. Leroy was a Cherokee. And on June 24th, there were 600 officers or like law people looking for Leroy and they surrounded a four mile area around the camp and when people found out they were not happy so many civilians they decided to come up well they decided to show up and it seemed like they wanted to possibly do something a lot of them were armed and many of them were drunk later on some of the members of the American Indian movement came to monitor the situation but this seemed to sort of just raise the tension. It became sort of a standoff. Luckily, nothing significant happened. There was no incident, except that eventually the American Indian Movement did accuse Sheriff Weaver of stirring up. He, they, they said that he was responsible for stirring up the tensions and that he was the one that had created a mob situation. And they also said that they felt like there was this feeling that was being built against the Native American that were involved in this case and it all basically was sheriff weaver's fault on june 29th the fbi sent 40 agents to assist the investigation which was good and sometimes you you hear you know that the local police department does not want to deal with the fbi or even with possible other um police agencies so it's nice that they were able to send 40 agents to help and they did accept about 10 months after the murder on april 6th 1978 the police found Leroy at a cabin and he was then arrested the cabin was in Cherokee County and was owned by Sam Pigeon Leroy was taken to the Oklahoma State Pen and Sam Pigeon was charged with harboring a fugitive there was evidence that could suggest that Leroy uh, was the murderer besides the few things that I already mentioned also at at Sam Pigeon's house 
there was a mirror and a corn cob pipe that had been allegedly taken from Camp Scott. Also, the hair that was found at the murder scene had similar general characteristics as Leroy's hair. At the cave, there were eyeglasses and a glasses case, which links Leroy, if you remember, I said, keep this in mind. So in 1966 is when he kidnapped the two pregnant women. He, he kidnapped them in Tulsa, and then he took them to the woods, and when he took them there, he raped them and sodomized both of them. They both wore glasses, and he would try them on during like the car ride that took place before the assault. So again, I just want you to remember that this was the offense that he was in prison for, for life. He had admitted to the crime, and he also stated that he intended to kill both of the women, but of course he didn't succeed, luckily. When he was arrested for that crime, he was wearing women's glasses. Despite all the evidence that proves that he could possibly be responsible, there are some things, and there is evidence to prove that he is also innocent. His trial started on March 19, 1979, and ended on May 30th. He had a lot of supporters in the community and many raised funds to get him top legal representation. At the trial, his defense said that Sheriff Weaver had planted evidence at the cave because the sheriff had a personal vendetta against Leroy. It was a known fact that Sheriff Weaver did not like Leroy, and because of this, the defense was really able to play that up and put a lot of of doubt on on Leroy being the murderer uh, because... <clears throat> Because, like I said, it was it was known that Leroy would be going after him no matter what. And so I think this took away a lot of his credibility and any evidence that he, he had found. The defense also suggested that there could be another suspect, and his name was William Stevens. William Stevens was a convicted rapist. A witness testified that they had loaned that red flashlight that was found at the murder scene to William and also to, to William and to his friend Dwayne Peters just a few weeks before the murder or murders. The same witness also said that William had come to their home after the killings with scratches on his arms and neck and that he had blood on his boots. Mrs. Dean Boyd identified William as a man that she saw at her cafe that was about 15 miles away from Camp Scott on the morning of the murders at about 5 or 6 a.m. and that he appeared to be nervous. An 11-year-old witness testified that she had seen William a few days before the murder at Camp Scott. Dwayne Peters said that William had confessed to him that he was the killer in October 1977 when they were drinking together. So basically, in a drunk conversation, Dwayne says that William had been working on an oil rig near the camp, and since he was raised in the area, he knew that the Girl Scouts would be coming soon. He said that William placed the camp under surveillance and that he had deliberately chosen the most secluded tent. He also said that William had covered the lens of the flashlight they had borrowed with duct tape and made a small hole so that nobody would notice him when he entered the camp. If you remember, the camp the camp counselors said that they saw a light in the woods, that it basically looked like a small floating light, which this this story sort of corroborates that that because he's saying that the flashlight had a small hole. And so the flashlight didn't appear like a normal flashlight, but just a small little a light. Dwayne said he was not involved, and he also claimed he didn't know the area, that he didn't work on the oil rig, and that he had never borrowed that flashlight. Both of those men had their blood and semen tested, and the state investigator said that they were no longer suspects, and they cleared them. Um, they just cleared them. 
At the court, there were six women and six men on the jury, and they only took five minutes to deliberate and came back with Leroy being innocent of all charges. Sheriff Weaver said he was, quote, shocked and disgusted, and that the case would not be reopened because, quote, we had the man we were after. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation also agreed that they had the right man. Nevertheless, Leroy was sent back to Oklahoma State Penn because he had to continue his 308-year sentence for the 1966 rapes of the two pregnant women. The ironic part is he ended up dying of a heart attack on June 4, 1979, only two months after his trial ended. To this day, this case remains unsolved. In 2008, however, there was some DNA tests performed, and they were able to find a partial DNA profile, but nothing really came of it. It was unsuccessful. Sherry Farmer was the mom of Lori, and she told the newspaper that she always believed there was a female involved, but that has never been proven, and there's not much evidence to suggest that that's true. Two of the parents filed a $5 million lawsuit against Magic Empire Council, which were the which was a company that owned the camp. And they claimed in the lawsuit that the girls were neglectful, which resulted in the death of their daughters. They claimed that they should have taken action when that note was found before the camp opened and that the girls' tent was too far away and not safe because it could not be seen by the counselors. The jury ruled in favor of Magic Empire Council, saying that the deaths were not due to their negligence. Also, a quick interesting little detail was that it had been said that there was this medicine man who had placed a a curse on the wonder dogs, and he had said that the dogs would die. And the weird thing is that I, I believe it was two out of three ended up dying, and one of them actually ended up dying while searching those woods because uh, he had died of heat exhaustion. I'm not sure which one came first, whether it was the story of the curse or if the dog actually died first, but either way, it's just something interesting to note because it's just so weird and spooky. So that's the story of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. The thing about these murders is that there were so many people there and yet nobody heard anything. Also, the murderer would have had to walk past the counselor tent to put the girls where they were found and possibly even made multiple trips. And then also it could be said that there were possibly two murderers because the attacks on the girls were not consistent. And also many people believe that Leroy ended up doing it. However, the fingerprints that were found and also the boot print that was found didn't match Leroy the boot print actually was too small to match Leroy at all. But but I don't think that that discounts Leroy. I think that, if anything, it would prove that there were two murderers. In my opinion, I feel like there must have been two people there because there was a difference in the attacks of the girls and having to move three bodies and also just having to subdue three three small girls would seem to be pretty difficult. I wonder how they didn't just start screaming right away. They must have had to subdue them right away before they were able to react, which makes me think there must have been at least two people. Okay, well, thank you for listening and see you next week.